is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish in Oklahoma City and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. And we're coming up fast on the celebration of the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which happens on the 12th of December, Tuesday. It's probably the most well-known apparition story of Our Lady, and the image that accompanies it is undoubtedly the most famous one in the world. Certainly it is so here in the United States. And I can say that as somebody who grew up at Immaculate Conception Parish on Southwest 29th Street in Oklahoma City before the great change of neighborhoods that took place in the 1970s with the arrival of the people from Mexico. All those years ago, the image of Guadalupe hung on the wall of the chapel as we entered the main doors there just to the left. It represents the heart of the story of this apparition, which itself represents the heart of Mexican evangelization and the story of the Catholic Church in the Americas. It is an amazing story. Like all stories, unless we understand where it comes from, we miss its telling. Take something simple like the story of Superman. If we didn't know, for example, that the confusion gripping the U.S. during the Great Depression, when it seemed as if the American dream might be over, and the ideals propelling American greatness were tarnished by economic ruin, we wouldn't understand what the story of Superman really meant. It was a whole lot more than a simple fantasy about a guy who could fly. It was a story about rescuing those who felt engulfed by their circumstances and unable to help themselves. That's why the Man of Steel represents the American way. Knowing where the story fits makes the story work. It's the same with the account of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And the story there begins with the arrival of the conquistadores from Spain. Christopher Columbus had discovered the New World in 1492 on an expedition financed by the Spanish crown. While he himself wasn't Spanish, he was from Genoa. The notion of nationhood was pretty diffuse at the time, so his discovery was for the kingdom of Spain, which was the the uh, kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. It began, his discovery, there began there, the Spanish presence in the Americas. By 1511, Cuba was occupied and further exploration of the surrounding area was launched. In 1519, the Spanish, in the person of uh, Hernando Cortez, had arrived in what is now Mexico City. By a series of almost unbelievable coincidences and stratagems and battles, Cortez conquered the Aztec Empire and began the occupation of Mexico in 1521. Lest we forget, the military model of spreading the faith was what had established the Muslim presence throughout the Middle East, and then all the way to China and India and west to North Africa, and then across the Straits of Hercules into Europe and to the outskirts of Paris. The Arab armies moved relentlessly in the 7th century to conquer and to occupy, including Spain. The reconquest of Spain is the only place in the world up to today in which a place which became Muslim by force of arms became another religion. So after 700 years of the reconquest, uh, which had been accomplished in 1492, when the Spanish arrived in the Americas, they were naturally presumed the prerogative to spread their religion as part of their conquest of the land there. Following military occupation, their priority was to embed the faith among the people, which was an arduous undertaking requiring them to shape the culture of the people and the practice of the faith. 
It's important for us to remember, to appreciate their concerns as they looked out upon the peoples that had become a part of their empire. First, the peoples were pagan. Their world was occupied by a long list of gods whose powers had to be recognized and propitiated. That included human sacrifice. The Spanish were concerned to teach their people to adore the true God and to enact the will of God in the world. Secondly, their cosmology was defined by violence and struggle. Their new religion was defined by love and self-giving. And the Spanish sought to instill this throughout the culture that they were building. And thirdly, the languages and myths of the people they encountered dominated everything about them and controlled what they saw and how they understood the world. The Spanish wanted to transform these stories into a true expression of Christian belief and practice. All of these were gigantic challenges, and achieving them would be the product of noble efforts on the part of the Spanish evangelizers. They were trying to change an entire world of belief, not just teach their people new facts. And nothing of this was easy. There weren't many Spaniards and certainly not many churchmen. Their efforts were slow, and they happened only in fits and starts. Unsurprisingly, there was a lot of resistance on the part of the people who clung to their old beliefs. This was compounded by the need of the churchmen, the evangelizers, to learn the language and understand the cultures of their new people. They knew it wasn't enough simply to impose a set of beliefs and practices. They had to build on a solid foundation, excavated to, down to the deepest possible levels in order to be firm and supportive of the, the message of the gospel. And nothing about this was easy. After a generation of only slight progress, it was uh, they, they had achieved a little, but not much. It was slow going for all these reasons. They knew they were not simply bringing Spain to Mexico. They were creating a whole new world of practice and a new set of practical beliefs among their people. This wasn't new. Every culture puts its stamp on the contours of Christian belief. We often have a hard time understanding this because our culture is invisible to us, as every culture is invisible to the people who live in it. Asking someone to appreciate what's normal for them is like asking someone to imagine what, what speaking English must sound like to somebody who doesn't understand it. Maybe we can imagine what it might be like, but we don't really know. Our experience of life has made the emphasis and practice of the faith in particular ways and that emphasis and practice is invisible to us because it's simply a part of our culture. For example, we celebrate Christmas with the images and symbols of Northern Europe. Santa Claus is dressed in clothes to keep him warm in the snow, and our depiction of Christmas time is holly wreaths and evergreen trees amid cold and ice, adorned with candles lit in the dark of winter. It's our culture. We think it perfectly appropriate, although it looks pretty funny in Australia, where Christmas happens to be in the summer, or in Nigeria, where the equatorial sun shines down on images of pine and mistletoe. It's culturally specific. And our culture celebrates the sacred heart of Jesus, which is an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, whose human sentiment connects with our capacities to love and care. It grew out of an historical concern in the cold rationality of Northern Europe that the emphasis on God as judge had overshadowed the promise of Christ as savior and companion. To recover this important aspect of our faith, the devotion to the sacred heart was established. In a different culture and in a different historical moment, that devotion wouldn't have been necessary. Devotion to the heart of Jesus didn't grow up in a place where people lived from the heart. It was an important emphasis in a place where people lived in their heads and were preoccupied by their thoughts. It's a product of, of, of its place and time. The devotion of the sacred heart of Jesus is 
in that example, a cultural artifact. What the Spaniards were engaged in establishing was the necessary cultural expressions of the life of faith among those to whom they were pro- pro- proclaiming the gospel. Now, some of this effort was explicit. They worked at establishing dictionaries and learning about the practices of the religion of the Aztecs. Their catechists learned the stories of the gods and goddesses that the people prayed to and sacrificed for, and they cataloged the images and prayers of the people they knew and honored. All of this was a way to try and get inside the religious imagination of the people of the time. If you've ever seen the, I don't know, the veggie tale storybooks for kids with, say, a story about Jesus and the prodigal son, for example, you've seen a product of what the gospel proclaimed in the images and understanding of our place and time looks like. The Spanish were trying to offer the gospel in their place and time in the Americas. Of course, much of the effort was also unconscious. They were struggling to make the gospel understood within the confines of culture and language, and this involved translation that was implicit as well as explicit. The first generation of those to hear the gospel helped this along by providing their own means and modes of expression as they sought to understand the life of Christ and the power of God. Think of those first generations of Catholics in Mexico who were trying to explain to those around them that Jesus is the good shepherd, and they were explaining this to people who had never seen sheep. They had to explain what what being a shepherd means, and perhaps they had to substitute another image for how what what real care or real concern looks like. The search for the images and explanations of the life of the faith was indigenous and had to be indigenous to the experience there in the life of the faith. After one generation, there'd been some success. The missionaries had established the communities of believers. Among the Spanish-speaking, there were the regular and recognized religion of the mother country, but within the native people, the missionaries had won converts and were working to integrate them into the community, but it was very slow going. Implanting the life of faith in the heart of the culture isn't easy, and the missionaries knew it. They had to be settled in for the long haul. And we need to recognize that they wanted to make the life of faith a culture of belief, not just an aspect of life. We often forget this as part of evangelization, especially because in our way, in our age, we have essentially lost the war of cultures. Our imagination moves us to think of the faith as contrary to the world of business or science or politics, rather than as a deep expression of those things. But real long-term evangelization works to convert the culture. When this happens, Every aspect of culture carries the message of the gospel and the hope of Christ. It's not just the prayers in church or the topics at Bible study that do. What could be better than to know that everyone who is a part of the everyday practice and expectation of a culture is being marinated with the love of God and the salvation and and our salvation in Christ? That's what the missionaries there wanted to achieve. The Archbishop of Mobile, Alabama, who was raised in New Orleans, gave a pithy description one time of what it means to grow up as part of a Catholic culture, at least what it looks like in our day and time. He said of the people he knew when he was growing up that in a place like southern Louisiana, where the outlines of culture and language and expectation were formed by the life of the church over centuries, there, if you were nothing as far as religion went, you were a Catholic. That designation meant that If you never had once been taught a whit about Catholic doctrine or didn't know one thing about the catechism or the Bible, you still understood yourself to be part of the church and knew that you were part of the Catholic expression of faith just by doing what everybody else was doing. So creating that culture is persuasive and powerful. 
After all, you know, we're all capitalists as, and part of a capitalist culture, even though not one person in 10,000 could describe the details of capitalism, where it came from, and what its tenets are. And for the most part, none of us care to know, as long as we can open up the envelopes from our mutual fund and know our account has increased in value. That's the culture of capitalism. In fact, if we're faced with some other suggestion that we should try socialism, for example, we don't know what to say. None of us have ever really thought about an an alternative or could explain why the one might be preferable to the other, if it is. We're completely disarmed when we're being challenged, other than defending what we've got and what we like, because the culture is what we're a part of. The culture of faith operates much the same way. It was slow going with all of the missionaries. And then suddenly, in 1531, Guadalupe happened. A first generation convert, um, his name was um, Cuatlatoatzin, who's known to us by his baptismal names of Juan Diego, that is, John James, experienced an apparition of, quote, a young woman clothed with the sun, unquote, who called herself Guadalupe and identified herself as the mother of God, the mother of Jesus. We've heard, all heard the story of that encounter and, and its ultimate results. In the exchange with Juan Diego, this woman insisted that he visit the Bishop of Mexico City and fulfill the request to build a church on the spot of the apparition. As these stories go, the bishop was reluctant. Bishops are always reluctant in the face of a message like that. They're always concerned about allocating their resources and making sense of their responsibilities. It's just not possible to respond to every request or make good on every insistent voice. But Juan Diego was tasked with making him understand what was needful and necessary at that moment. There's also another part another hidden part to this encounter as well. Juan Diego would have been known to the bishop, even if only slightly. He was a Catholic convert and had been part of more or less the royal family, such as it was, in one of the major tribes there. This would make him notable in the eyes of those who were interested in making the faith come alive among the people there. He was certainly not a part of the ruling hierarchy of the place, but neither was he a nobody. When he went to see the bishop, he was known, he was admitted. And in the visit with the bishop, Juan Diego reported what the woman had told him. The most salient point in the eyes of those who heard the account was that she had called herself Guadalupe and that she had spoken to Juan Diego in his own language. Both of those are important. The first was significant because there was a devotion called Our Lady Guadalupe in Spain that had been a minor part of the faith there for centuries. It was a simple story on a riverbank in Spain a statue of Our Lady had been excavated from the spot where it had been hidden long, many years before at the time of the Muslim conquest. It was a memorial of the difficult struggles for Spanish Catholicism, as well as a reminder of the reconquest and the vitality of the faith there. We don't know what the young woman actually said to Juan Diego when she said the word Guadalupe. She spoke in his native language and not in Spanish. But those who heard his story when he repeated what she had said heard him say, Guadalupe. What he heard more than anything else was that she was the mother of God, which is a title that was given to Mary in the 5th century at the Council of Ephesus. And she was speaking to him not in Spanish, but in the language of the people of the Valley of Mexico. The second 
aspect of all this was that he was hearing this message of the faith in his own language, in the rhythms of his own heart. This was part of the translation of the faith into the story and to the life of the people there. However, there was also a part of his story that was hard to credit. Juan Diego reported that he had encountered this apparition on Tepeyac Hill, north of Mexico City. This was a notable area in that it was a place in which in the past there had been a shrine to a goddess there. To have a native man mention that he had encountered an apparition of a young woman on Tepeyac Hill, entrusting him with a message to the local bishop, would be like something like saying that you'd heard a special message today from a trans workshop presenter that you needed to communicate to the head of the church. That is to say, it probably wouldn't be well received. So when Juan Diego spoke to the bishop, the bishop dismissed him and dismissed his request. Eventually, as a sign of the seriousness of the request, Juan Diego found and then delivered to the bishop a thicket of flowering roses, which were usually unavailable during this dry season. They would have impressed him as something odd and unusual. And of course, when he brought the roses, everybody was struck with the image of the woman clothed with the sun that, to Juan Diego's surprise, was imprinted on his cape. It's this image that has become the most well-known Marian figure in the world. This cape is the one that still hangs in the basilica in Mexico City. On the image is an entire school of native cosmology. There are a dozen YouTube videos that you can look up detailing what the stars on the cape and the flowers on the garment actually mean. The other elements of the image are also analyzed in detail. They describe what the indigenous Mexican apprehension of these things would have been and what someone would have understood upon seeing them for the first time. The image is a school of evangelization. It presents the story of God intervening with his people so that they might understand his initiative offered to them in Christ. It's a story of the most profound level of evangelization. In fact, the Spanish evangelization of the Americas is the most successful and the most thorough of all of the efforts to evangelize in all of Christian history. Now, it took a long time for the message to spread. This wasn't overnight. It wasn't an immediate moment in which everything became clear in an instant. But it was a message delivered to the people of, Mex- to the people of Mexico. Unlike what we're used to and what we value, which are words and propositions and reasons, the teaching came to the people of Mexico by way of this story. And within that story was the appreciation of appearances, the types of language that was used, and the images and symbols of the image left as a result of this apparition. Unlike the previous evangelization efforts, this was effective. Those who saw understood, and in understanding, the light shone for them. It was an inspiration. We might take a lesson a lesson about this kind of evangelization from a short passage in the book of the prophet Amos. Amos writes, Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O men of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring the Israelites from the land of Egypt like I brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? In this passage, God's, God lets the Israelites know that they're not the only ones whom he directs or rescues. In fact, their great claim as God's chosen is compared to the previous action of God to bless and protect and choose other people. Amos reminds Israel that God is the God of all people, not just one group. The timeline of God at work and blessings being rendered includes what God does for others, not just what God does for Israel. 
God has been the Savior of all people, not just one tribe, not just one nation. As the early church fathers pointed out, there are the seeds of the gospel planted all over the world in each culture. The apparition to Juan Diego was a chance for some of these seeds to sprout in the Valley of Mexico so that the people there could hear and understand the gospel in their own language and amid their own understanding. When Coatlatotzin uh, opened his cape, when he opened his cape, the message of God to his people was already being communicated and powerfully. God acted to save his people, including those who were hearing the good news for the first time. Guadalupe has been woven into the life of Mexico since this time. In the succeeding generations, the spread of the gospel was phenomenal, stretching throughout the Aztec empire of Tenochtitlan, the name of Mexico City, and central Mexico, and then south to Central America and north through the reaches of North America. It touched us, this evangelization, even up to Oklahoma from its beginnings to today. The first church in what is now Oklahoma was built in the Washita in 1603. That's 13 years before the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock. Here in Oklahoma, a church was built. The fathers who established this mission came up from Mexico and stayed about 15 years. And the Mexican experience in the Church of Oklahoma has been a factor in the growth of the church here from its formal diocesan establishment in the late 19th century up to today. Catholic culture in its Mexican form has become a phenomenon of such proportions it continues to impact the world even today. The largest seminary in the world is in Guadalajara. The Curcio, which has its roots in Spain but, became, but came to flower in Mexico, is the largest and most influential lay movement in the Catholic Church. And Mexican Catholic practice has now arrived in the U.S. and has begun to influence the regular lives of American Catholics in everything, from its music and its vestments to its calendar and its cuisine. The image of Our Lady of Guadalupe became the catalyst of a living faith. God was at work with his people, and the people have responded. God is still at work. That's what we celebrate. Mary's message to Juan Diego remains as clear and as pertinent today, right now, as it did on the withered hillside of Tepeyac in 1531. She told him to build the church here. And our task today is still the same. In every way we can, and with every opportunity, we are to continue to build the church here. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to our final segment. We have a poem today called Advent Impatience. Mostly we think we don't like to wait, and our Advent is time spent badly. Anticipating the not yet, we loathe and hate. We rush to the day, our object, madly. It's all true. We are far from being patient. Truly, we chafe and pull at the not yet. Prefer immediacy, renaissance of our calendars to seize what we can get. But really, we've become accustomed to long season of true preparation. Our sensibilities dulled past numb in the long advents of our own station. For Christmas is not now a season of 12 days, as on previous pages in time gone by, but has now expanded five-fold ways to fill where November and all December lie. We prepare for 40, 50 days, carefully, propelled to action by Christmas's impatience, not always as we would like, prayerfully, but by rushing toward every store's cry, so that we'll be ready for the sure morn in which all our waiting is then fulfilled, 
when Christ is finally mid shepherds crowds born and Bethlehem heat brings Jerusalem's chill. When it's over and done, come and gone, we can all prepared see the season out. It's over even at the lighting dawn. Our drama peaked, then faded into doubt. That's Advent Impatience. It's not too early to contact your parish to make sure that you know what the Christmas schedule is going to be like. We still have a couple of weeks to go, of course, but the celebration of Christmas, certainly one of the uh, hearts of our celebration, is coming up soon. I hope that in the weeks to come, we can be together. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.